Welcome to Tasty Grinds, the podcast where we talk to people with fascinating careers in food and dig into how they pull it off. I'm your host, Daphne Goff. Hey friends, today's episode is a conversation with Stacey Coldis, a steward on educational sailing trips. In this role, she's responsible for provisioning, cooking, and feeding 30 to 40 hungry students and researchers for weeks at a time, all in a tiny kitchen that's sometimes thousands of miles away from the nearest grocery store. We'll hear how she came to cook on the high seas, what it means to eat sustainably abroad, and what to do when you're in port and the mayor stops by with 14 of his hungry friends. Plus, one story that is truly shocking, or rather, was shocking to Saisy. So get on board for a glimpse of life in the galley. Saisy, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Daphne. It's a pleasure to be here. So what do you say when people ask you what you do? So that depends. Um, on some ships, they call them cooks. Um, at SEA, the Sea Education Association out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where I am pri- where I've primarily worked, um, we call them stewards. We are stewards. And um, generally speaking, the below decks area of the ship is my charge. So it's not just the galley. It's the conditions of the dry storage area to the cleanliness of the refrigerator, which we call the reefer, to the organization and folding of sheets. It's my job to make things happen and to keep everything that happens in the galley and living spaces running smoothly. And I'm also responsible for cooking two seatings of three meals per day, plus three snacks for up to 40 people. We have generally 25, up to 25 students, plus crew members aboard. And um, in order to do that, I also need to provision the ship. So depending on where we are, um, figuring out how to get produce and dry goods aboard that we'll need. And um, where generally have these um, voyages taken place? So we have two ships at SCA. One is the Corwith Kramer, which we affectionately call the Kramer, in uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Which and she sails mostly in the Caribbean, and recently, in the past couple of years, has been making transatlantic voyages to Ireland and down the coast of um, France and Spain. So that's the Atlantic ship, and then the Pacific ship is um, the Robert C. Siemens, which we call the Siemens. And the Siemens sails um, mostly out of Honolulu, um, spending a lot of time around New Zealand these days. So uh, typical ports of call might be Fiji, Tahiti, Marquesas, Samoa, um, Wallace and Fatuna, and various ports around New Zealand. And how on earth did you get started doing that? <laughs> So it's really kind of a strange, complicated confluence of events. Um, I was a student on an SEA trip back in 1994. And back then, there was just one standard SEA semester, whereas now there's a wide variety of programs that more specifically cater to students interested in cultural studies or climate change or what have you. And um, I, I did this program as a student, and it was challenging for me. I was an English major. It was a science-heavy program. Um, I was used to my creature comforts and being on board a ship with 30-plus other people. And so when you have 44, or 40 people, rather, um, aboard a 134-foot 
boat, um, you know, it's crowded quarters and you're in the tropics and it's hot or you're all freezing together. Um, there, there are conditions to be met. And so, um, it was a challenge for me on multiple levels, but it was a challenge that really changed and shaped my perspective going forward. And I really appreciated my shipmates and crew on board, um, who made that happen for me. And so I had this, program in the back of my mind as I went through my master's programs and I was um, an English professor at the college level and I taught here in Maine at Southern Maine Community College and ended up as a um, a scientific editor at Annual Reviews in Palo Alto, California and always had this in the back of my head, this sailing and while I was working for annual reviews, it was California and California is fantastic and they have this great education budget. And so they actually paid for me to go on a five day sail through the Southern California bite and as an alumni of SEA mm-hmm. so that I could go back out and see what scientists were doing in the field. And I fell in love all over again and thought I need to find some way to get back to sea. And I wanted to contribute to SEA in some way. I wanted to contribute to this program and to give back to this program that had changed my perspective on the world. And I didn't know how to do that because I wasn't a sailor. I wasn't a scientist. I wasn't an engineer. And I certainly didn't see myself as a chef. (laughs) And so I didn't know how to do that. And instead, I went and I worked for another um, ship. I signed on as a deckhand on the tall ship Almastad. And we did social justice programs up and down the eastern seaboard and I got an opportunity to cook when our cook went home for a couple of weeks and I realized hey I can do this and I you know I'd always cooked for myself I'd cooked for friends we had had cooking competitions in college and I had gotten really involved um, in cooking for myself and for friends but never professionally and um, people in my life would say, you know, you should really, you should really do this professionally. And I was, oh, you're crazy. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know the first thing about this. I could never do this professionally. And I ended up applying for an assistance position with SEA. And when they called me, uh, it was a year after I had applied, and I came on board for two weeks. And I thought maybe I would do two trips as an assistant, and then that would be enough. And I would get back to the academic job market and um, continue on with my life's trajectory. And instead, I fell in love with it. And I was immediately promoted to head steward and was able to continue for the past five and a half years um, on board these SEA ships. And um, it's (laughs) it's been a steep learning curve, but it's been pretty fantastic. Wow. And paint a picture of a day in the life and maybe focusing mostly on the the cooking aspect of it, just to to narrow it down a little bit of Mm -hmm. what all your various responsibilities were and how you, I mean, cooking for 40 people three times a day is a lot in itself. So (laughs) how do you do that on a ship nonetheless? It is. So yes, everything's moving. Um, It's, (laughs) hot in the tropics. It's up to 120 degrees. Um, the ship is keeled over or um, pitching and yawing into the ocean and you're responsible for putting this food out no matter what. And 
Um, often, sometimes we would have a professional assistant in the galley. Most often, there was a student rotating through the galley doing dishes and a student assistant helping the steward, me, in the galley uh, throughout the day. But um, that was that was it. And that student may have boiled water in the past, and that <laughs> student may have taken cooking classes in the past. You really have no idea until you meet the student. So it really is all on, on your shoulders, but you are also teaching students a lot en route. So it's, um, it, it's a challenge. It's a balance between cooking and teaching the students and giving them ownership over the cooking. So my day would usually start between three and four in the morning. Stewards tend to make a schedule that works for them within the boundaries of the ship schedule and waking up early and quietly drinking coffee in the dark <laughs> tended to work for me best. Um, the first seating of breakfast is at 6.20 and the second seating is at 7. And so prior to 6.20, I would often try to accomplish uh, making one of the three snacks, if not two of them, and prepping for the day in addition to making breakfast. So, you know, if I'm alone in the galley, I can chop vegetables really quickly. I can um, <clears throat> sort of prepare baked goods, I can prepare a cookie dough, I can prepare those kinds of things and set them aside for later so that once breakfast is finished, I can take a short break. After four hours of work, I can go take a quick nap because snack is served at 10 o'clock. And then the first eating of lunch is at 12.20 and 1 o'clock, respectively, and snack again at 4 p.m. after class, which is sort of an all-hands event where everyone is on deck between 1.30 and 3.30, learning oceanography and nautical science and all of the academic subjects. And the crew is included in this, and so is the steward, um, sort of a community time. And then after snack is served at 4, there's 2 hours and 20 minutes before the first seating of dinner. And the second seating of dinner is at 7 p.m. And once dinner is cleaned up, you... um, place midnight snack out for the students because they're standing watch throughout the night. And so people need something, some sort of sustenance throughout the night. Um, And around 8 or 9 p.m., I would meet to plan meals with the student who's assigned to the galley the next day. And those meetings could last up to an hour or two, depending on what I needed to go over with them and how much autonomy they wanted on their actual galley day. So I'd end up asleep by 9 or 10 p.m. And then up again at three. Wow. That's that's really exhausting sounding. (laughs) Um, It is completely physically taxing. It's emotionally exhausting. Um, But then again, I would work for seven weeks straight generally between provisioning the ship and then turning the ship over to another person. And then I would get a huge chunk of time off. Hmm. So there was time to recuperate. Yeah, which I think would be very important. Um, and describe at the galley itself. I mean, it's not your average kitchen. So can you describe a little bit what makes it different from a restaurant kitchen or even a home kitchen? Sure, sure. Um, well, you saw the newest iteration of our ship. So the older iteration is the Kramer, the Atlantic ship. And she has a cast iron diesel powered stove. Um, And 
she is named Roxanne after the police song, Roxanne. <laughs> we call her Roxy uh, because she has a little red light on her. And every single time the engineers switch generators from generator one to generator two, um, it kicks off the power to the stove and the diesel stops flowing and the stove kicks off. So generally, Roxy is fired up at two or three in the morning by a student prior to waking me up and then she stays hot all day. And when she kicks off, it is up to the students and every crew personnel to keep an eye for that red light because if that red light goes on and the stove stays cold for too long, whatever's cooking won't cook. Mm. So there's <clears throat> there's that aspect of the Kramer. Um, and the Kramer has a much smaller galley and has no um, no bread machine. So everything that you do, you do by hand. Um, all of the bread that you make for 40 people every day is all needed by hand. Um, whereas the Siemens was built about 10, more than 10 years after the Kramer. And so there are updates and iterations. We have walk-in reefer and a walk-in freezer as opposed to the crawl-in on the Kramer. And we have a fully electric stove. So uh, in that sense, it is an industrial stove um, with two ovens and six burners, I believe, and a griddle and a warming space. Um, But it is not gimbaled. So, um, you know, when the ship moves, you have to fiddle in your pots and your pans. And that makes it tricky with pans because the fiddles aren't that great in holding those in place. So often you have to have students standing by to monitor whatever is in those pots and make sure that it's not sloshing all over the place. Um, But the Siemens Gallery, which I worked in the most, is a square with an island in the center. And... Um, the island is super helpful in that you always need to be able to grab on because at any moment, if they are setting and striking sail, if they're tacking or jibing on deck, um, they will yell down and warn you, but the ship is going to pitch in a way that you might not expect when you least expect it. And so it's really important to have somewhere to hold on at all times. And so you might be um, carrying a pot of hot water across to the sink and you need to be able to use one of your hands in order to grab onto something that doesn't go flying across the room. Yeah. Um, So it is set up in such a way with the island in the center that you can always have one hand for the ship to keep yourself upright. Wow. And that's pretty wonderful. Um, But the galley is mostly uh, pots, pans, spices, um, and things that you will use immediately. There's a big flour bin and a big sugar bin, that sort of thing. But um, most of the goods are kept down in the dry storage area, which is right up against the hull of the ship. And uh, there are multiple trips per day to retrieve things from dry storage. And the most fun is to send the students down for the 40, 50 pound bags of sugar and flour and um, let them use their ingenuity to figure out how to get them off the ladder while still holding on to the ship. And um, <laughs> all sorts of fun games that, that we play along the way. Um, but then again, we do have you know the big walk-in um, reefer and freezer that is right across from the galley. So we do have quick access to all of those things. This seems like the kind of situation that would lend itself to a great deal of hazing. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> just a little, just a little. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, is really different about cooking in the galley as opposed to the kitchen is that things do go flying. So at home, I might take everything out, all the ingredients that I'm going to use and have them ready to go, especially when baking so that I can add things at the correct times and at the correct temperatures and all of that. And in a galley, you really can't do that because the stuff will fly <laughs> across the galley. Um, so everything has to be uh, battened down at all times, especially if you know, it's not glassy calm. And um, <clears throat> one, of, one of the most shocking things that happened to me on board was I had a bowl of soy sauce and I was whisking in ingredients for some sashimi and uh, I turned my back on the bowl for just a moment and the ship rolled and the soy sauce arced out of the bowl and hit a light switch across mm. the galley and started a fire in the wall. Oh my God. And so I mean, who would have ever thought that you'd end up with soy sauce in the light switch that was behind the door? Wow. But um, it just arced out and, and started a fire, and um, it was it was a real learning experience for everyone. All the light switches were changed to waterproof switches, and um, and I never turned my back on anything again. Wow. I imagine that aside from the movement of the ship, there's not a whole lot of counter space either, right? What's, how big is the galley itself? Oh, so I would say 10 feet by 15 feet from... You know, wall to wall. On the ship, we call them ceilings, but wall to wall, um, ten feet by fifteen feet. But then you have all of the the shelving area and counter space and the stove and the sink and all that sort of built out from that. Um, so there's really not a lot of space, which is actually great for a galley. And mm. that's another difference. You know, in a kitchen, you want a lot of space to move. And in the galley, you don't want space to move because you always want to be able to grab onto something. Mm. So too much space is actually a negative. Um, <clears throat> so having just sort of an alleyway in which you can walk between the stove and your cutting board, for example, is really important because then you will never be thrown too far. Right. And then, you know, sort of a general difference is that you can't go to the store. Right. If you are in a restaurant and you're cooking something and suddenly you notice that the basil has turned brown, you can send someone to get to our basil, whereas in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you can't send anyone to the store. And so um, even when you come into port, if you go to a place like Christmas Island, um, it's an atoll and they're dependent on their supply ship for everything. So even though there's a store, um, there's only fresh provisions immediately after the supply ship. And then if you buy anything, you might be taking from someone who won't see another until the next supply ship. So you have to really balance your own needs with the needs of the community that you visit. Um, so that's that's also a difference, um, which is a more sort of cerebral difference, but it's, but it's a difference. And how do you know what you need to buy? So initially... So they've, in the past five years, they have created a position at SEA that oversees the storage department and distributes uh, information to new storage and does some training. But when I started, it was a learn on your feet kind of a thing. You worked as an assistant for two weeks or for a trip and you... Um, you worked with a person who had some experience who would pass their vision on to you. 
Um, but what you learn ultimately is that um, you are going to make these choices yourself as you go. Your your choices are going to differ than someone's choices who came before you. So, um, you know, you learn on your feet. And initially you're given, right, you're given this um, Cisco website <laughs> and you're leaving from Florida and it's pages and pages long and you have no idea that the saltines you just ordered come in two packs instead of sleeves because you've never ordered from something like this before and you get this box and, and then you get a big huge 40 gallon plastic bag of ketchup and you're thinking what am I going to do with this and, and you have no idea what you've done and, and you make do and then you learn over time um how to negotiate those websites and those systems and and you learn how to negotiate well what happens in Hawaii, which is which is different. We don't use Cisco at all. And what happens in American Samoa, what happens in uh, Fiji, what happens in Tahiti? And how do you how do you figure out provisioning in Tahiti when everything is in kilograms instead of cases. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a very visual person, so ordering by the case, it's easy to say I would like a case of oranges. Um, when somebody asked me how many kilograms I want, that took me a long time to get used to. And so what I did in order to help people who came after me was take pictures of the visual amount of the kilograms that I ordered so that American stores could come on board and say, okay, that's how much I want um, because it was a big learning curve for me. Wow. For sure. What about the availability of specific ingredients um, in different ports? One of the things for me was getting to the Pacific and having a bunch of aha moments. Um, I had primarily started off in the Atlantic and then uh, I came to the Pacific and my, my first whoa moment was realizing that uh, fish, vegetables, produce all have their own words in Tahitian and French and Marquesan and Samoan. And so not only was I learning new foods, but I was learning their differing designations depending on where I was and whether I was doing business in Tahiti with a French person or an Islander or a Chinese person who may be selling Chinese vegetables using the Chinese name. Um, and so that was my that was my initial leap um, was learning what was available. Um, and then <clears throat> I did a trip uh, entitled SPICE, which stands for Sustainability in Polynesian Island Cultures and Ecosystems. And that's where I really have this series of aha moments. There's no dark leafy greens in Polynesia. There are taro leaves. Um, and that pretty much suffices for your darkest leafy green. Um, and so the students who are coming from California and who are really used to fresh produce are, you know, where's my kale? Where's my chard? Where's my, um, where are all of those things that I'm accustomed to? And when you provision it in Tahiti, those just aren't available. And so learning to, um, at first, what I would do is, uh, I would contact the steward two or three trips prior to mine who was leaving from San Diego. And I would have her uh, reserve a case in the freezer and buy a bunch of chard and kale and chop and freeze um, in airtight baggies um, those leafy greens so that I would have something to add to the food that would pacify the students who were really missing those items. And then I did this spice trip, sustainability in Polynesian island cultures and ecosystems. 
And I started to ask why I was doing that. Um, what did it matter? What food was available? Um, we had a Tahitian archaeologist on board. and He really suffered from our American diet. He missed fish and white rice and small sweet pineapples and varieties of banana and taro and breadfruit. And mostly I think he ended up sustaining himself on Nutella. And I wasn't <laughs> able to provide him with what he considered comfort food, but we were very much in his home waters traveling to his islands. And it seemed so wrong to me and so typically American. And I wanted to... Um, be able to cater to the locals that we had on board. So that was my first epiphany. And then it seemed so American that we would travel to all of these foreign ports and bring our own food and serve our own food. I mean, if a student studies abroad in India, the sponsoring university doesn't bring American food to the dining hall. The students are exposed to Indian food and culture, and that's part of the experience. But here I was with the ship's hold weighted with hundreds of number 10 cans and whenever possible fresh food that was also familiar and not usually local. And um, perhaps three or four times a trip, islanders in places like Tahuata and Fatuhiva and the Marquesas would invite us to dine and dance with them on shore. But otherwise, the students were back on the boat for every meal and they were taking sandwiches to shore and they were eating in true American style. And I thought that there must be some way to balance the comfort foods of home, which really contribute to peace of mind on board ship where students can't just run to the store to satisfy a craving with locally available foods and local food preparation. And um, then on my first trip out of Tahiti, I ordered apples along with everything else we needed as I was instructed to through the port liaison. And by the time the apples arrived, they had traveled thousands of miles from New Zealand, where they were grown, to the U.S. through an American distribution center to Tahiti. And that seemed the exact opposite of sustainable, yet this was a sustainability trip. And I had never been to Tahiti, so initially I didn't know what they had to offer. But standing on the deck of the ship holding this well-traveled apple, I could see the bounty of the local marketplace, and I was sick over it. And I thought... Why do why do I need kale from home? I think that there's a different way to do this. I think I need to learn how to cook with what's available rather than looking for what's not. Um, and it also seemed like food seemed like such a natural and obvious way to connect with culture. You can't learn a language in a week, but you can really connect with the food of a place in a week. And you can eat of so many different dishes that have been passed down through centuries, sometimes thousands of year old taro in some of these places. And I really felt that the galley was underutilized in this regard in terms of connecting with culture on a culture and sustainability trip. Mm. And so I ended up talking about my frustrations with the director of the program and at the time, I'd reached this point where I thought I was ready to move on from SEA. I knew that I could walk onto the boat at any point during a trip, look around at what bits and pieces were available, and within two hours, I could prepare a delicious meal for 3,000 people. And it was still physically demanding, but the intellectual challenge had kind of gone out of it. And I expressed this to him, and he asked me to stay for another trip, to sail the next year's spice trip, to come and teach in the shore component beforehand to plan together for an incorporation of more sustainable and local provisioning into the general sustainability program. And it was just too delicious to resist. <laughs> so I was able to put what had bothered me in front of the students and allow them to create their own solutions. 
And this fabulous student, Tyler, took it upon himself to spearhead the student initiative. And the next day in class announced that the entire student group had agreed they wanted to go six weeks without apples from beyond, without oranges from Florida, without celery from the U.S., without even cheese from Vermont. They wanted to eat as sustainably as possible. And I know that group a lot. They were my guinea pigs. (laughs) That's awesome. And how did you learn how to work with all of those ingredients like breadfruit and taro? Dabney, that is a very good question. (laughs) It was uh, a lot of trial and error. There were some epic disasters. Um, I live in Maine. So in order to get a breadfruit, I'd have to drive around Asian and Caribbean markets in Boston. And I was being told next Wednesday, three Wednesdays in a row, until I realized that culturally saying Wednesday had just been their way of not saying no. Right, (laughs) right. So there wasn't much opportunity to test recipes. And there aren't that many Polynesian cookbooks written in English. So it was really trial and error learning on my feet. And that first provisioning experience actually was fantastic thanks to our local friend, the archaeologist Mohono. Um, I came into Tahiti and we took his girlfriend's truck and we drove around the island to small farms and roadside stands and he bargained for me in French or Tahitian depending on the vendor and we filled the back of this pickup truck. And his aunt donated a ton of food from her land. Um, and I would wake up really early every morning at five o'clock, walk down to the market before breakfast and haul back as much food as I could carry, 40 pounds of mangoes, um, crates and crates of taro leaves, and just sort of haul it back a little bit at a time on my back until we got the ship fully stocked. And it was really not what anyone was used to. There were <laughs> there were a couple of disasters. Um, I made. Uh, taro leaves the first time and I only cooked them for 60 minutes and oh. I didn't soak them beforehand and everybody was complaining of a scratchy throat and, and they were scared off of taro leaves until I could convince them to try them again. Um, because normally you have to cook them for like two hours before that oxalic acid yes. breaks down. Yes. Exactly. Um, there's apparently a crystalline structure in there that, that does not break down in those 60 minutes. Do people eat differently when they're on board a ship? Yes. So one thing that happens is your clock becomes regulated to eating at least six times a day. And sometimes seven, if you're on watch at two o'clock in the morning, you might make yourself some ramen noodles that are always stashed and and ready to go. Um, But I recently read a study where they've determined that sleep deprivation uh, really affects your level of hunger or your your brain signals that mm-hmm. signal that you're hungry. And so when you're on a um, watch system like this and you're attending class and you're working on your projects, you're sleep deprived for six weeks. And so, yes, I think everyone eats more and everyone craves more um, hearty foods and carbohydrates. So that ends up being another thing that you consider if it's really hot out you might serve rice as your heavy food because um, people are really much more interested in fruits and vegetables and things of that nature, but they're interested in eating a lot of them. And if you are crossing the Atlantic in June, it's cold and people want pasta and soups and hot foods and things that will warm them from the inside out. What are the most important skills for cooking on a ship? A sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Really? And a backup plan, always having a backup plan and being prepared for every eventuality. If you come into port and suddenly someone says, well, the mayor wants to come for dinner and, oh, he just showed up with 14 other people. Is that okay? 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> and and also knowing that it's Samoa and that they're going to eat twice as much as right. the students because it's dinner time in Samoa and and so having to come up with all of that. Um so I, I would say a sense of humor is really the most important thing. I mean anyone can anyone can read a recipe and anyone can um check things off on a Cisco list and, and you can get by making good food in that job um, with with a learning curve, but um, it's not a very steep learning curve. The steep learning curve is learning that anything can go wrong at any second and just rolling with it and always maintaining your, your equilibrium. What else do you have to say? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, so food preservation on board ship is a very interesting thing. So you're going out to sea and you do have a refrigerator and a freezer to work with, but um, you have to get your produce to last longer than it typically lasts in your own refrigerator when you just stick it in a crisper drawer. And so the first thing that we do when we receive a large shipment is to lay out all of the produce. Usually you'll see a dock area covered in um, a truckload of produce and we'll dry that uh, in the sun. And that is a matter of, say, drying the lettuce without wilting it. So it's a matter of watching the produce all day in various stages of drying and flipping the fruit and um, making sure that uh, there's as little moisture on it as possible. And then we get a whole crew of people together and we wrap the fruits and vegetables in paper. And so that will also help absorb some of the moisture in the refrigerator. And then we pack the fruits and vegetables in crates and put them in the refrigerator. And then it's a matter of using those in the right order and before they rot. And so plums, for instance, if they are well packaged, will last six weeks in the refrigerator, no problem. And so you know that you can stash those in the back and not use them. Um, but then there are other things that you really do need to be on top of and, and using very, very quickly. Basil, without fail, starts to turn about five minutes after you leave the dock, <laughs> whereas time can last eight weeks. And so you really just sort of have to keep in mind, keep that in mind when you're planning meals and preparing meals, um, how to utilize what you've packed. And uh, on the Siemens, it's less of an issue with space because we do have this large walk-in refrigerator and freezer. Whereas on the Kramer Atlantic boat, we have two a smaller, uh, well, we have a smaller uh, crawl-in refrigerator and a smaller crawl-in freezer. And so those tend to have to be packed um, beforehand by the week. So... If you're doing a six-week trip, you pack the food for the sixth week in the rear of the freezer, and the, then the fifth week goes in front of that, and the fourth week goes in front of that, and the third week, et cetera, et cetera, um, so that you can access that food. Otherwise, if you've packed incorrectly, chances are you won't be able to access anything that's in the back of the freezer until you've cleaned out the front. So it is a matter of uh, also planning for how you how you pack things. Um, and then it's a matter of rotating produce. Uh, you may be able to store some of your produce like uh, potatoes and sweet potatoes and cabbage on deck in boxes, covered boxes for the first week, and then rotate those down into the refrigerator once you free up some refrigerator space. So it's a matter of um, knowing what can last, what temperatures you're going to be in. 
having been in touch with you over the years when you have been doing these sales, it seemed like multiple times you were in a, you were in a mindset where you thought, well, this is the last sale and then I'm going <laughs> to live on the mainland. I'm going to do my thing and live in Maine. But the sea kept drawing you back. Do you feel, do you still feel that? Do you think you'll ever really be finished on the seas? No, no, I don't. And every once in a while I get a call um, from an organization or a ship who needs someone. And I am very tempted to go. I've been sort of dedicating this year to editing and writing and other pursuits, um, and but I don't discount the fact that I will eventually go then. I mean, the the, the pull is too strong. Um, we've also just purchased a sailboat of our own, so I hope that we will take to the seas and and I can practice provisioning for just two people or four people or however many we have on board. Um, but I don't anticipate that 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 will go away ever. It's it's so much a part of who I am the travel and the exposure to the places I'd never be able to get to without a boat um, are, are too intoxicating. Wow. That's just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it is. It's been, um, I mean, it's been completely life changing for me and it started 20 years ago with uh, a student trip that just come back around. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. I found it fascinating. And I think others will too. Thanks, Tommy. And thanks for talking to me about it. It's been a real pleasure to be able to relive some of these memories um, with all of your listeners. That's it for today. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or at tastygrinds.com, where you can also find show notes, subscribe to our email list, or let us know who you'd like to hear interviewed. Until next time, thanks for listening.